And learning Torah is so much more profound than just simply an academic experience. As we'll learn from the story of Hanukkah and from the story of Yosef being thrown into a pit, as it says in this week's parasha, when the Torah tells us that Yosef was thrown into a pit that was empty without water, when it's talking in the section about Hanukkah, gives the following explanation. My dechsi, what does it mean when the Pasuk says, boy reik boy mayim, that the pit was empty and it had no water? Once the Torah tells me that the pit was empty, any do I not already know that it has no water? And what is the Torah trying to tell us? That mayim ein boy, that water which you may have expected from such a pit was absent. But there were snakes and scorpions in that pit. Now, the first question you have to ask yourself is why is the Gemara in the middle of a discussion about Hanukkah quoting this particular Gemara? So why is it Huva be Gemara besugi de Hanukkah? It's because this Balamaimer, uh, the person who taught this particular teaching about the boy, is the same person who had just been quoted with regards to Hanukkah. As the Gemara, they said, speaking about the halachas of the candle of the Hanukkah, the Hanukkah Menorah. And so now, because it's an unusual, and the Gemara sometimes does this, when you have the name of an unusual source, then you quote other teachings from that same source. Ah, well, that's not good enough. Seeing as we've explained numerous times that every single thing in Torah is absolutely precise. If the Gemara quotes something in a particular context, it cannot just simply be because there's a hyperlink between the person who said the previous quotation and therefore he's going to be the person that we quote again over here. And the Meshum so it must be because there's a, an intrinsic link between what the Gemara was just talking about, which is Hanukkah, and this particular story. So only at the end of the Sikha will we bring the story back to Hanukkah. Clearly, this lesson about the empty pit that Yosef was thrown into is very much aligned to the story of Hanukkah. Especially when you consider what the Shalah writes in the beginning, actually, of our Parsha. He points out that these three Parshas, starting with Vayeshev, are very much linked to Hanukkah. And this Pasuk is a pasuk in Vayeshev, the first of the three parashas that the Shalot links with Hanukkah. So there must be a very strong link between this and Hanukkah. And in order to get there, let's first understand what the significance is of the lack of water in this bor. Well, what does water represent for us? We know very well, Amr Chazal and Mayim El Torah, that water is the standard metaphor used to refer to Torah. From which we can extrapolate that any time the Torah uses the term water, it is, in addition to the, the, the superficial version of the story, also speaking about Torah. Especially in this case. The Pasuk that says that the, the pit was empty and had no water. The Medrash Rabbah says clearly that this is referring to Torah because it says, an empty pit means it means that the pit or the well of Yaakov had been drained and emptied. The absence of water over here, the Medrash says, clearly is an absence of Torah because Torah is compared to water. So there you have it. There's a link between this empty well and the concept of Torah. 
In fact, that's the deeper meaning between the Gemara we've just quoted that said, that it was devoid of water, but this pit did have menacing snakes and scorpions. Especially when we consider that the Medrash actually bring, brings both opinions. The fact that it was empty of water, but it had these menacing creatures. And and the Medrash also said that the lack of water is the lack of Torah. And the Medrash brings those back to back. So therefore, that teaches us, according to if God forbid a person is in a position where the person is empty of Torah, which the Pasuk would consider has no water, says immediately there are snakes and scorpions. There's no gray area. Vahaino meaning. Shachesoran shein boy divrei Torah. That means that if a person is lacking Torah, ain't a rak bekach shuhu reik mitorah. The problem over there is not only the lack of something positive, the lack of Torah in the system. But maybe the person is at least filled with other less menacing, but not holy things, right? Maybe the person is just busy with with neutral things. That's what the Chassidus tells us. That as soon as there is an absence of Torah, there is automatically a danger. There's automatically snakes and scorpions. Things that are contrary to and that oppose holy things. And that is similar to something the Baal Shem Tov taught, the Pasuk in Shema that tells us that we will veer away from Hashem, chas v'sholem, and then serve our idols. Says the Baal Shem Tov, as soon as a person creates any distance, chas v'sholem, between himself and Hashem, that person is immediately already serving idolatry, and there is no middle ground. Which would also explain why the Torah did not have to explain that this pit had snakes and scorpions. But it's kind of self-understood that the the Rabbanon derived from the fact that it was devoid of water. Because you don't have to explain it. It's a natural consequence. If there's no Torah to fill the space, it will be filled by snakes and scorpions. That's why the Bereshit's Rabbi quotes both of these suggestions of what the Pasuk means back to back. Because the first explanation is linked to the second explanation. In other words, Why are there snakes and scorpions? The first explanation, because there's no Torah learning. The second explanation, which is comparable to water. And so, as a result, what's going to emerge from the story will be something which is against the values of Torah. Yosef sold as a slave. Now, this is quite a dramatic thought, that the minute there's an absence of Torah, there's automatically something negative. Is that the case? The we could ask a question. If you want to say the Balshentov explanation, that makes sense. Where he says, that veering away from Hashem is already because there he's talking about a really critical element of are we connected to Hashem or have we moved away from Hashem? Move on, that makes sense. That if a person makes any move away from Hashem, that is already a rejection, that is already a rebellion, that is already an alignment with Avodah that makes sense. Even if it's not outright idolatry, it will be a 
subtle form of idolatry that makes sense. Moving away from Hashem automatically aligns a person with the opposite. But our story seems a bit radical. What we're talking about over here is a person who doesn't have Torah in their system. How is it absolutely guaranteed that if there's a lack of Torah, it will automatically produce forces that are antithetical to and opposed to and obstruct the Torah? Why? Maybe there is a middle ground. Maybe there's engagement with Torah and being a little bit lost. And then, of course, the person who's in a really bad way. And there's another perspective we have to consider, which is in the story, the brothers didn't just simply want to throw Yosef into the pit because they had a grudge. They felt that halachically he deserved the death penalty. Like the Sforno says, because they believed that Yosef was actually plotting to kill them. Which put him into the category of Roidef, where you can kill the perpetrator before he harms his victim. Or other explanations brought in various places, like the Rachaim, for example, um, who says that the issue over here was. Uh, that Yosef had spoken badly about them to their father and he hadn't actually evidenced the things he was accusing them of, therefore he had the din of an aidzomim, etc. The bottom line is that the brothers had reason to believe that Yosef deserved to be killed. So then how is it possible that the Medjah should suggest that because the brothers wanted to kill Yosef, ostensibly with halachic backing, that emptied out Yaakov's pit, so to speak, as if Yaakov is now void of Torah, but they actually took a Torah approach. The Medjash is almost implying as if the Shvatim completely ignored what the Torah has to say. Which seems really incredible if you consider that they believed what they were doing was within the context of Torah. So in order to understand this, let's go back to something that we possibly overlook because it, it seems to be so obvious. What do we really mean when we say that the Torah is compared to water? What is the reason that our sages compare Torah to water? In different places, the Torah is compared to various things. bread, and wine, and the reason we have these various metaphors for Torah is because each represents a particular unique characteristic that the Torah has. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is the characteristic represented by water? The Kabbalinian Mayan Shabbat Torah Amr Chazal says the sages, why is the Torah compared to water? Just as water will always flow from a higher to a lower place. Likewise, the Torah will only flow, will only become accessible to a person who is extremely humble. In other words, Water is not a metaphor to represent everything the Torah is about. Rather, the water aspect of Torah is a metaphor for the humility required in order for Torah to work, in order for Torah to get through to a person. Then we can explain the Medrash Rabbah, which said, Because of the decisions of the brothers, therefore Yaakov's pool of Torah was dried up and there was no Torah. Yes, of course, they had Torah information and Torah knowledge that they were using in order to arrive at their decision to get rid of Yosef. The part of the Torah that was missing from them was the water 
aspect within Torah. We'll discuss this in greater detail. But the point is, what they were missing was, what was missing was the water aspect within the Torah that they were learning. Torah information they had, insight they had, knowledge they had. But relative to who they were, they were lacking in terms of their humility, their beetle to accept what the Torah really had to say. Just to illustrate that bitul is something which is relative to a person's stature. Let's look at how we bow, which is supposed to express our absolute servitude to Hashem during Namida. The way we do it is we bend and we straighten up when we say Hashem's name. But the halacha is when the king bows at the beginning of the Amidah, he has to remain bowed for the whole Amidah because relative to his stature as the king, he has to exhibit a far more extreme version of subservience to Hashem. And so should the brothers have done when they were calculating halachically what to do with Yosef. Apparently they didn't. But that still makes our original question stronger. If we're talking only about a lack relative to the greatness of the brothers, then how is it that the minute there's an absence of water, it automatically produces something negative? As soon as there's not mayim, the humility needed for Torah, immediately there are going to be snakes and scorpions. Just because their style of learning is not as humble as it should be. That's going to produce something which is exactly the opposite to and obstructs the Torah. So we probably have to understand that humility is not just an element of the experience of Torah. It speaks to the heart of what Torah is all about. Why do we learn Torah? It's not academics. It's not to feel good. It's not to have knowledge. It's not to pat ourselves on the back. The explanation is Zikr who the ultimate goal of Torah is Mashal that when you learn Torah, the learner becomes bound with Hashem, the giver of Torah. That's why we learn Torah, not to be smart, not to have knowledge, not to be able to render halachic decisions. The key is to connect to Hashem. And in order to connect to Hashem, to connect to Hashem, a an absolute requirement is humility and bittal. As long as a person is locked into their own sense of self, then the person has all the limitations of a created being. A created finite being with all the effort and investment in the world can never reach an infinite target. In other words, can never connect to the infinite giver of the Torah. So how do you get there? Only when a person is willing to shed their ego completely and have absolute bittle to Hashem which releases a person from his natural limitations and restraints. That allows the person the, the, the capacity to connect to infinite God giver of the Torah. And that's actually how we say it when we ask Hashem to be able to learn Torah properly in our davening every day. We say, Let us have a soul that is as humble as earth and then open up our hearts to understand your Torah. 
You would expect that in order to learn Torah, which is what we're asking for over here, surely that's something that has to have enthusiasm and energy. And in order to learn Torah, you actually have to understand what you're learning. The only way you can understand something is your brain has to be working as your brain. And the only way you can feel for Torah is your feelings have to be activated. Your feelings. Whereas the suggestion that we should be as humble as dust, completely rejects the notion of self. Where does that allow the possibility of being enthusiastic about Torah? Who am I? Why should I be enthusiastic? Understanding Torah? Who am I that I should understand anything? It sounds contradictory. Why do we say that? Because Because what we're saying is, when is it possible for my heart to be able to open up to know your Torah? In other words, the way you want the Torah to be. How can a person have access or contain Hashem's absolutely infinite Torah? The first step is the person has to have absolute bitl, not just somewhat bitl. I'm kind of subservient to Hashem. But like sand that everybody tramples on without any worry about self. With the preface of that kind of absolute dedication and bitl to Hashem, then a person opens themselves up to be able to understand how Torah is from Hashem's perspective. And then when you invest effort after that, because you've now opened yourself to learn Torah with the most humility and acceptance, now you actually start to physically learn the Torah. Then you're actually able to do what seems impossible, to absorb within the human experience, the human mind and the human feelings, Hashem's infinite Torah. And that's something interesting we're going to find about how we learn Torah. Because the way that we learn Torah, even though you would think that Torah is an intellectual pursuit, is actually quite unique. What's unique? Saying the words when we learn Torah has a certain advantage, even over understanding intellectually what we are learning. How do we know that? Because I do know it's a simple halacha that says, If a person is only thinking words of Torah in their head, they are not required to first say the bracha over Torah. Why? Because thinking words of Torah is not considered as effective as saying the words of Torah. Not only that, anything that a person only thinks through in their mind, which they could have actually mouthed and said aloud, but didn't, you don't really fulfill the full extent of the mitzvah of learning Torah. That is, that you should learn through the words that you're saying. In fact, more than that, we're going to see another advantage to saying the words when we learn. The sages teach us that actually you'll understand Torah better when you speak it out. The Pasuk says that the Torah gives life to those who find it, or find the words of Torah. says the Gemara, It actually doesn't just mean if you find words of Torah, you find life. But if you 
bring those words out, you pronounce those words, that's when you find life. And then the Gemara says further, If the words of the Torah absorb through not only your mouth, but all of the limbs of your body, then they will last. And if you don't get the words like into you, the fiber of your being, then the Torah doesn't last. Now that's strange, because you would have thought the Torah is all about understanding what's the difference if you say the words. Let's say that a person said words of Torah if it's Torah without understanding what the person is saying. We all know that that's a waste of time. And you say the words without understanding them, it is zero value in terms of learning Torah. Which emphasizes that when it comes to Torah the primary way we fulfill the mitzvah is by understanding what we learn. If that's the case, why is it so important to say the words of Torah when we learn? To the extent that if we forget or we don't actually say the words, not only do you not say a bracha, not only do you not fully fulfill the mitzvah of learning Torah, there's almost a guarantee that the Torah says you're not going to hold on to that information if you didn't say it aloud. Why? Why is speaking related to a mitzvah which is all about understanding, surely? And the answer is because Torah is not academic. Following on from what we said earlier, the goal of Torah is the relationship and bond that we create with Hashem who gave the Torah. So what we have to ensure then, when we're learning Torah, is that what we're learning is should not only be locked into our understanding. That's stuff that happens in our brain. If we just sit there reading it as if it was a library book, then it would just be in our brain. They would be speaking the language of how human intellectuals, with all of their greatness and limitations, understand information. We want to go one step more than that. We want to show that this is not just an academic pursuit and we're not just sitting in a library flipping through a book. We're actually serving Hashem. And by saying the words, that's going to illustrate that we're serving Hashem. How are we going to show that this is Hashem's Torah? Well, first, before we start to learn, we're going to have this incredible bitul and dedication to Hashem and humility. But we're not going to stop there. But the way we go through every nuance of the learning will continue that theme of complete Bittal Tashem. And that's why our learning is going to be vocalized and it's going to be something we feel in every part of our body because that will show that we're here to serve Hashem, not just to fill our brain with information. If a person were to learn Torah just using their mind, which is of course the most advanced faculty of the human, then we're saying, oh, human, that's right, that's how humans work. They use brains and he's using his brain. So he's having a human experience right now where the content happens to be Torah. As long as a person is having a human experience, they cannot grasp Hashem's infinite Torah. And we'll explain this. We'll explain it that it's impossible for the human mind, for example, to comprehend the idea of an elephant going through the eye of a needle. 
Now, let's be honest. A, an elephant might be large, but it is finite. In a cave in Shekupa de Machta Cotton Mimenu, because it is too big for the tiny eye of a needle, goes without saying that the elephant cannot get through the eye of a needle, not only in real life, but even as the Gemara Brochus tells us, you cannot even have a dream of such a ridiculous proposal, an elephant at its size going through the eye of a needle at its size. Now those are two finite objects which are relative to each other. When you're talking about Torah, which is linked directly to Hashem, the so-called pleasure of the king at his essence, that which is absolutely infinite. There's no way that that infinite information is getting inside the most brilliant but finite human brain. So therefore, if all I'm using to access Torah is only my brain, it's not a sufficient tool, I cannot hold on to the Torah, it will not last. It's not possible that it will remain with a person because the person is a person who is finite and the Torah they're trying to grasp is infinite. Finite cannot grasp and hold on to infinite. Okay, my super big Gemara Sham, the Gemara even gives an example. Asha Talmud Echad, Shahiyashen Belacha, Shachach Talmud, that there was a student who used to learn his Torah very quietly, kind of whispered what he was learning, and he forgot what he had learned. So, what does it help to say it aloud? But when a person starts to invest other parts of their body, you say the words of the Torah, you shockle, so you're investing all the parts of your body in the Torah, you're moving your hands, there's a sense that it is a completely dynamic experience. Now you're using parts of the human being, you're using parts of the human being which are less developed than the brain, which is the crown jewel of the human. Which basically means that the person is learning Torah by diminishing themselves. It's not all about me and my brilliant brain. It's about bringing myself and the Torah that I'm learning into where Hashem wants it to be. Which means the person is saying, it's not about me. It's not about me, the brilliant intellectual. Well, then the Torah can be absorbed. Then the Torah can become ours. Then the Torah can be mishtameris. It can be in us for the long term because we're letting go of the self, which is actually the barrier, the limited self. And we're saying, I'm doing what the Ebishter wants. He wants me to say these words. He wants me to use my body. That's going to access Torah. Now we can go back to our original quotation. That as soon as there was no water in the pit, there were automatically snakes and scorpions. As we pointed out, that this is an automatic consequence. The minute there's no water, there's automatically snakes and scorpions. And we wanted to know why. Well, the answer is now quite clear. Because what is Torah, the so-called water? Water in the in the in the pit, it is connection to Hashem. And how do you get connection to Hashem? Only by relinquishing the sense of self. The person learning has to let go of self. There's no gray area. There's no middle ground. If the person learning Torah has bittel. Then that person will align with the truth of what the Torah is, which is Hashem's will. But if the person doesn't have the water element of Torah, in other words, they're lacking that bitl, 
then the person might have a tremendous amount of knowledge, but they have no relationship with the giver of Torah, and therefore they have no relationship with Torah. As we already said, if you can't get the elephant through the eye of the needle, you can't get infinite Torah into the human brain for sure. And therefore, in exactly the same way as as soon as a person veers even one iota away from Hashem, they're already in the direction of Avoid Zorah. So too, as soon as there's a lack of beetle in a person's Torah learning, the wrong stuff is in the Torah. So that means when a person is lacking bitul, not only will they not have a meaningful, real relationship with Torah, because the Gemara tells us Torah cannot be associated with arrogant people, and but much worse than that, the person actually becomes an obstacle to kedusha. like the famous Gemara, that the says, if a person is arrogant, the Eibusha cannot be in the same space as them. In fact, it gets worse than that. In fact, we're told that if a person learns Torah in such a way with, with arrogance, if a person is generally arrogant, they are considered like an idolater, they are considered like they've rejected Hashem. That's what happens to Yosef's brothers. So Gam Pirsha Medrash Menagelachi Yosef. Kanal. The minute the brothers of, of Yosef started to come up with a plan why they should kill him, which they believed to be halachically correct, but their learning clearly was lacking the kind of bitter that they at their level should have had. Now it's considered as if there's no terror there at all. The whole well is empty. It's not like the Torah that they were learning is of zero value. They had strong halachic arguments that Yosef deserved what was coming to him. But relative to their incredibly advanced spiritual status, they were lacking in the kind of bitl that was expected of them. And because they lacked that bitl, well, that led them to actually make the wrong decision about what should happen to Yosef. And that's going to have a knock-on effect on a very important segment of Jewish history, which is directly related to our conversation. Because think about it, Yosef being sold is actually the precursor to receiving the Torah. It's very obvious that the story of Yosef's sale is the direct cause of the Golos and subsequent Geula from Mitzrayim. Because of course, as a result of Yosef being sold into Mitzrayim, that's how Yaakov and his whole family landed up there in the first place. But we're going to focus on why was there Golos Mitzrayim and why was there Geula Mitzrayim. It's all for a higher purpose. The goal is that that would then get the Jews to receive the Torah. So, therefore, if part of the story is the fact that the Bora was empty and it had snakes and scorpions, that also has to be linked to the story of getting the Torah, Matan Torah. Something the Torah is teaching us here. This part of the story is also relevant to not just Yosef's story, not even the story of Golos Mitzrayim, but it is relevant also to the story of Matan Torah. 
הביטול הנידרש מהלאומית, כדי שיסקשר אל נויסן התורה, הסחדש בעיקר במתן תורה. Because what have we been talking about? We need to have the water aspect of Torah. The ביטול to Torah, well, the capacity for true ביטול to Torah was actually only introduced at the time of the giving of the Torah. So yes, we have high expectations of Yosef's brothers, but the real experience of ביטול for Torah only comes about at the time of מתן תורה. How do we see that? Well, let's look at the difference between how Torah was learned as uh, before and after מתן תורה. החלק בלימוד התורה של האובייס לפני מתן תורה, ובין לימוד התורה של הבונים לאחרי מתן תורה הוא, the distinction between how our forefathers learned Torah before Sinai and how we learn Torah today is, that לפני מתן תורה היה לימוד בכיח עצמו. All Torah learning that occurred before the giving of the Torah had to be self-motivated and self-propelled. And therefore, how much Torah was it possible to understand before Matan Torah depended on the individual and their spiritual and intellectual capacity. What completely changed at the time of the giving of the Torah is that they gave us a gift. So they gave us His Torah. The fact is that the Torah, from Hashem's perspective, as Hashem experiences and enjoys the Torah, was handed over by the Ebesha to every single one of us. As we know that every single one of us is required every single day to say which include the words that Hashem gave us the Torah. And by the way, that helps us understand a very intriguing comment by the Chazal about Moshe Rabbeinu. What did Chazal tell us about Moshe Rabbeinu? Originally, whenever Moshe learned Torah, he forgot what he learned. Until the Ebesha gave it to him as a gift. That's a strange story. Other people, before Moshe Rabbeinu, before the Torah was given, learned Torah. As we know that from the time of Avraham Avinu, there was never a period where the Jews were devoid of Torah learning. There's no question they didn't forget what they learned. Because you can't say that there was a yeshiva, a settled, uh, long-term type of Torah learning. You can't say that if everybody's forgetting what they learned. Before Matan Torah, people remembered what they learned, but after Matan Torah, Moshe initially forgot what he learned. Rabbi's explanation is profound. Because as mentioned, before the Torah was given, the expectation of what you could achieve and how much Torah you could learn and how deep you could go was all relative to human capacity. So you could personally accept, learn, And, and assimilate whatever information you were capable of learning. Now Hashem doesn't give Torah, i.e. knowledge, which is relative to human experience. He gives Torah, soy, His Torah. Torah, which is completely beyond the entire reality of creation. Torah that no human can actually contain, absorb, get, chap. Therefore, Moshe couldn't hold on to the information, not because he is less than the others, because the Torah he is being presented with is infinitely greater. Like we said, the person who doesn't learn with Bittel cannot hang on to their Torah. The key of the story is that David then gives him the Torah as a gift, because that gives us insight into what is special about Torah now, post-Matan Torah.
HaKadosh Baruch Hu Kol Yochel, Ebesha can do anything. Over Koichel Lechaber Bligvul Ugvul, and Ebesha's superpower is to be able to harmonize the natural and finite with the supernatural infinite. Therefore, Nosan Esther Yosei Bilti Mugbelas Nit Noloi, the Ebesha could then therefore give his impossible to understand Torah to Moshe, and by extension to us, to understand. Whenever a person gives a gift, they do so generously. And the greatness of a gift is the person doesn't necessarily have to be, so to speak, deserving of the gift and certainly doesn't have to be able to afford the gift. Slebeshe is giving us, puny humans, a gift which is way beyond anything we could even begin to imagine. It's called Toy Ra Soy, his Torah. The same as the stories with Moshe Rabbeinu, it applies also to each of us. Every one of us is capable of really, truly understanding and integrating Hashem's Torah. Why? Because they gave it to us as a generous gift, not because we're special. By the way, there's another side to this, which is that, of course, we are able to access Torah because they gave it to us. The Ibish is giving us a gift, but in order for us to be able to take hold of the gift, we need that bitl. If we're there on our own accord, well, then we don't have access to the gift. We have to be, so to speak, out of the way so the Ibish can give us what he wants to give us. And the reason for that is because the Ibish designed the world that whatever, even the greatest things that are going to come our way, are going to come through our efforts. So that nothing should be the bread of shame, a handout. Therefore, the Ebesh expects that we're going to do something as a human. Because that will at least create some sense of deserving to be able to get what the Ebesh wants to give us. What do we have to do? The key is Bittel. Bittel frees us from ourselves, from our limitations, and therefore opens us to receive the gift that the Ebishter wants to give us. That takes us right back to Hanukkah. Now we understand the connection between this interpretation of the empty pit. This is linked to Hanukkah, which is why the Gemara that tells us about it is a Gemara about Hanukkah. We know Chassidus talks quite a lot about the fact that in our prayer of Al-Anissim and Hanukkah we say, When the Seleucid Empire, the Hellenist Empire, rose up. They wanted us to forget your Torah, not just Torah, but your Torah. They didn't want us to forget Torah information. What they wanted us to forget was that Torah is not academics. Torah is infinite divine wisdom. Torah It's your Torah. And for the exact same reason their strategy was to contaminate the oil in the base. Not to pour the oil down the gutter. Because oil, they understood, represents the ultimate state of wisdom. The Yavonim were willing for Jews to keep generic oil, ordinary wisdom, academic Torah. 
But it should be defiled. In other words, it should be information decoupled from the source of that information. It should be academics without a sense of holiness. And that's why the Ebishter made a miracle which apparently was not a necessary miracle for let, to let them find this one little jug of pure oil. Because tr- technically speaking, if everything and everybody is impure, the halacha allows you to light the menorah with impure oil. So we don't need the miracle. Why does Hashem do the miracle? Because that's exactly what the whole Hanukkah message is about. The dedication of the Yidden to make sure that the Torah they engaged with was Torah, your infinite, holy Torah, unadulterated. And therefore, they wish to provide it. And as we've just mentioned throughout this entire sicha about the empty pit, it's only when you have the water aspect of Torah, the complete bitl of Torah, then a person is protected from any of the negative forces that might want to interfere with the Torah. In Al Derech Zehu the Chanukah, the same thing applied to Chanukah. When you light the Chanukah menorah, and you light it with pure oil, as we're supposed to. Then, as the Gemara tells us, you light the menorah until the footsteps of the so-called merchants disappear from the streets. And we know that the word Talmud is oisios moiredes. Talmud is the same letters as those who would rebel against Hashem. At any time where we are lacking in terms of the purity of the oil, or the commitment to the fact that Torah is Hashem's holy infinite Torah, then there is the possibility of rebellion and obstruction to godliness. But when we light our publicly, to the extent that it illuminates the world that is out there, that is what removes all kind of rebellion even out there in the streets, not only in our lives. The light and purity of our Torah learning, of our commitment to Hashem, of our bittel, gets rid of the lowest of the low forms of rebellion against Hashem. Till we completely illuminate the Golos and bring the ultimate Gula with Mashiach immediately right now.